Howdy, welcome to a brand new episode of Cannon Calls. I'm your host, Jake McAtee, and this week I have recurring guest Dr. Michael Ward to talk about his brand new book, After Humanity, A Guide to C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man. Dr. Ward teaches at Houston Baptist University in the MA program. He's professor of apologetics there. He also writes quite a bit. Last time he was on, we talked about his very, very famous book, Planet Narnia which you should go get yesterday. If you're interested in more on C.S. Lewis from our shelf, Pastor Douglas Wilson has a book called What I Learned in Narnia that I highly recommend. And please keep a lookout for Pastor Doug's brand new book on C.S. Lewis that should be out in the next few months. Without further ado, Dr. Michael Ward. All right, now welcoming on special guest, Dr. Michael Ward. We're talking to him today about his brand new book, After Humanity, A Guide to C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man. Dr. Ward, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Jake. Good to be back with you. Yes. So we have a new book. Last time we talked to you about Planet Narnia. Today we're talking about, it's probably my favorite genre is a book on a book. And uh, I think you're right up there with some of my favorite authors that do that. Can you tell us about why The Abolition of Man? What, what got you started on this project? Yeah, so The Abolition of Man is one of Lewis's less well-known works, but a very important work and, and much admired by those people who do know it. It originated as a series of lectures that he gave during the Second World War, philosophy lectures, uh, about the objectivity of value whether value is something real out there in the world or something we just subjectively make up. Uh, and um, it's a difficult work. By Lewis's standards, it's, it's uncharacteristically dense and even a bit obscure in places. And I've been you know, reading it for many years um, and trying to teach it for some of that time. And I've noticed that my students often find it difficult as indeed I did the first few times I tried it, and as indeed I still do in some respects, because as I say, it's not, it's not the most accessible of Lewis's works. So I thought it was time that uh, someone wrote a guide to the abolition of man uh, to clarify some of these difficulties uh, and, and make this very important work more accessible. And um, After Humanity, a guide to C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man is the result. It was published uh, a month or two ago by Word on Fire Academic, uh, a new academic line. And um, I'm very pleased with not only the way they've produced it, with an excellent cover design and a full photo gallery of about 30 images inside, uh, but they've also marketed it fantastically. So it's already sold out. It's <laughs> printing of 5,000 copies, and it's had to be reprinted already. Now, how did Lewis view? The Abolition of Man. How, how, what was his take on uh, the work itself after it was finished and then maybe its reception? He liked it very much. He, he said of it, it's almost my favorite among my books, which is very high <laughs> praise. Right. And the, uh, the fictional equivalent of The Abolition of Man, which is that hideous strength, the third book in his Ransom trilogy, uh, of that, Lewis said that it was his favorite work in the trilogy. Um, so this set of ideas about 
the objectivity of value and the need to, to stand up against subjectivism obviously meant a great deal to C.S. Lewis. Right. Not just intellectually either, but um, he, I think personally, because he himself had grappled with subjectivism as a, as a teenager and as a young man, and he'd seen its strengths as, a, as an alternative philosophy, but also its weaknesses and ultimately its falsity. And having beaten it, as it were, philosophically and come out the other side, um, he was well positioned to, to talk about it, write about it. And indeed, it became a, quite a, a running theme in his work. Uh, some of his earliest writings as an academic, when he, when he began his academic career at Oxford, because of course, remember, he began his academic career as a philosopher, uh, are on this very subject. You know, the very first lectures he gave at Oxford were on uh, the hegemony of moral value. <laughs> and that rather um, abstruse sounding set of lectures was refined and improved over the years and eventually saw the light of day as the abolition of man. Um, and if you want a more sort of accessible version of the abolition of man, you could, you could not do better really than read the first four chapters of mere Christianity. Because there again, Lewis opens his whole defense of the Christian faith by, by starting out with a moral argument. Why do we believe that certain things are right and certain things are wrong, certain things are good and certain things are bad? Why do we believe this? And he, he thinks that's a very good way into one of the three great transcendentals, you know, goodness, truth, and beauty. And here, yeah. goodness is the avenue, the, the doorway into, um, in mere Christianity, uh, a defense, first of all, of theism and then of Christianity. But in, mere, but in the abolition of man, uh, he doesn't get that far. He doesn't get as far as God. He doesn't get as far as the Christian God. Uh, it's just a purely philosophical account um, about objective value because he sees objective value as, as one of the defining faculties of, of humanity. Um, this is really a definitively human attribute. And if we ignore it, if we downplay it, if indeed we eradicate it, we are effectively eradicating ourselves, which is why he calls his book The Abolition of Man. Now, was this published at a particular moment? Could you give maybe just the outside context of the book? Is that, is that at all play a role, you think, in, in the arguments made or anything of that nature? Well, it was, uh, as I say, it began life as a series of lectures in, that he gave in 1943. Okay. And it was published later that year. Um, so we're talking slap bang in the middle of the Second World War. Right. But I don't think that the, the wartime context was especially relevant because, okay. as I say, he had been working on this set of ideas for you know, at least 20 odd years. Possibly the more relevant context was not the Second World War, but the First World War. Interesting. Because remember, remember Lewis had been a, a teenage officer in the British Army during the First World War and had very nearly been killed in that conflict. And indeed, many of his comrades and friends had been killed. I mean, Lewis, the whole course of Lewis's life was changed by the death of his friend Paddy Moore, because uh, Paddy and Lewis had promised each other that if either of them was to be killed in the war, that the surviving one would look after the dead man's family. And when Paddy, alas, was killed in uh, 1918, Lewis kept his promise and, and lived with Paddy's 
mother, Jane, for the next 30 years or so, and with Paddy's sister for about 20 years until she married and moved away. Um, and why is this relevant to the abolition of man? Because in the abolition of man, Lewis argues that the, the crucial test of the objectivity of value is suffering and or in, indeed dying for a good cause. And he repeatedly quotes the old Latin tag, dulce et decorum est pro patria mori. It's sweet and seemly to die for one's country. Those are lines from the Roman poet Horace. And alongside those, Lewis uh, less frequently quotes uh, the words of Jesus in the Gospels about um, how it is, uh, how um, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And this is the crucial test of the objectivity of value, Lewis argues, because um, if value were merely subjective, if it was just the projection of our own private preferences and, and temporary whims, but, but had no substance, no reality outside our own will, then if we had to suffer and die for the good, we would change the good, wouldn't we? <laughs> because right. it, it evidently has become inconvenient. <laughs> but but if we are the, the fount of, of, of our goodness, then, well, we, we can just turn on a different tap, can't we, and make something else good so that we don't have to suffer and die. So the First World War and Lewis's experience in the First World War of seeing people suffer and die for what they believe to be a good cause, well, I think was a major element in his, in his thrashing out this topic uh, and coming to realize the objectivity of value. Now, could you introduce us? He, he, he talks about, uh, I believe in the opening lecture, Men Without Chests, he talks about the Green Book and the authors there just as his primary example. Can you tell us a little bit about that? The Green Book is the name that Lewis gives to a book that was in reality called The Control of Language. He he gives it this pseudonym, partly I think to spare the blushes of the of the authors um, whom he really lays into, and he gives them pseudonyms too. He calls them Gaius and Titius, whereas in reality they were called uh, Alec King and Martin Ketley. Um, but this Green Book, as he calls it, it was indeed a, a book with a green cover, and I've looked at his his own copy uh, at the Wade Centre in Wheaton College, uh, which is full of his marginal comments, um, saying things like, rubbish, ugh, <laughs> because he was deeply unimpressed by the Green Book. Uh, and the Green Book was an attempt, well, so it was supposedly about English composition, um, the, and it smuggled in to a, a book on a different topic, um, this subjectivism, this idea that objective value is not real. And, and this got Lewis's goat on two counts, partly because he didn't believe in subjectivism, but partly also because he, he, he thought that if you're writing a book on one subject, you shouldn't smuggle in a book on a, a subject that is quite other than that, especially not for children. So that's his opening target in his, op in his first lecture, Men Without Chests. And um, I have a picture of King and Ketley. I have a picture of the book. And, um, yeah, I give a lot of background about about that. Uh, it's quite interesting once you you dig into the the uh, immediate target that Lewis is aiming at. Now, was it a point of discussion, Doctor Ward, when you take the dust jacket off of your own book? It also happens to be green. <laughs> <laughs> 
You're the first person who's pointed that out. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but it had a chance to me too, and it's quite a nice little irony. It is. Yeah. It is. <laughs> okay, so now he, uh, it was, you, you mentioned it was written for children. Did, did Lewis, in terms of, of his rebuttal, why did he feel like it was important enough to write a short or these lectures that were in response, but that ended up being a book in response to the Green Book? What, what do you believe he saw hanging in the balance? Well, the Green Book is, is really just, a, it's just a, a foil. It's a convenient target that he can attack as a springboard into his, his larger argument about subjectivism. Uh, so the Green Book is not terribly important in and of itself. It's only a symptom of a larger problem. And it, it's that larger philosophical error of subjectivism that, that is Lewis's larger target. Um, and indeed, it, not only is he wanting to defend the objectivity of value, uh, another element of Lewis's book is is a forecast, a prophecy about where we will end up if we go down the subjectivist route. So the abolition of man is both a defense and, an, and, a, and a prophecy. He's defending the objectivity of value, but he's also saying if we go down this subjectivist route, we will end up abolishing effectively our humanity. We will either evaporate upwards into false spirituality or will descend downwards into mere animality. But between the spiritual head and the sensual belly is this definitively human organ, the chest, and that's the liaison officer between cerebral man and visceral man. And that's why he, his opening chapter is called Men Without Chests, because those who, who have no liaison officer connecting their reason and their passion are less than fully human. Uh, and that's why we need to work on our chests um, to integrate our feelings and our thoughts uh, so that we can be both intelligently emotional and emotionally intelligent. You know, the, the classic, a, a classic definition of, of a human being is the rational animal. And um, that rational animality and that that embodied reason is is located as it were within this philosophical model of the human person that lewis is developing uh, within the chest and that's why uh, interestingly in the narnia chronicles you have the occasional nod towards the importance of the chest so peter pevensey in the lion the witch and the wardrobe grows up to be a a tall and deep-chested man and shift the ape, who's the kind of antichrist ape figure in um, the last battle. He says apes always have weak chests. So even in Narnia, Lewis is glancing at this uh, this set of ideas. So you're very well known for Planet Narnia. Was it? Did you enjoy working on nonfiction with Lewis? I did. Yes, um, I enjoyed the process of pressing into this work, even though I'm no philosopher myself. Um, and indeed, that's one of the reasons I, I felt this book was necessary. I enjoyed it very much. Uh, the Abolition of Man turns out to be a, a much deeper, more interesting work than I'd taken it to be. Um, I must admit, I, I learned a lot and I, I grew in my appreciation of the book. It's, it's true, you're quite right, that I, I'm more a kind of literary critic of fictional works 
my first degree was in English, and um, I, I feel, as it were, more at home tackling fiction. But this philosophical work, I think, was just about within my 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 capacity. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and I hope that you know the fact that I myself have found it difficult means that my guide will be particularly helpful and useful to to readers because I I don't take anything for granted. Right. Right. Because I'm not philosophically trained and um I have to, you know, un- unpack a lot of these ideas for myself before I can do any unpacking for my reader. You mentioned the first four chapters in Mere Christianity sort of are are an easier abolition of man. And you've already mentioned how you can kind of see even in his fiction, abolition of man, or at least the principles therein are are showing up. Do you believe the abolition of man is maybe, how would you consider it in relation to the rest of his works? Is this something you see underneath everything else he's written? I do. Yes. I I don't think that's putting it too strongly. (laughs) And and indeed, I'm not the first person to say this. Uh, The the late, great Walter Hooper said of, of the abolition of man that it was a an all but indispensable introduction to the entire corpus of Louisiana. Wow. And other scholars have described it as the linchpin of all Lewis's work. Because it's not just in That Hideous Strength, it's not just in Narnia, it's not just in Mere Christianity, but in, in numerous other works, long and short, you see versions of the argument or offcuts of the argument or, or restatements of the argument. Um, in all sorts of interesting places, and I and I I poke into some of those in the course of After Humanity. So I think anybody who's interested in C.S. Lewis would do well to really get to grips with the abolition of man, because once you have got that under your belt, as it were, you're well situated to to understand a, a lot of what motivates Lewis as a thinker and as a writer most deeply. I believe last time you were on, we talked about a lot of Lewis's medieval work. So a ton of his nonfiction that you might find, you know, that he lectured on and, and in those places. But Lewis is probably very well known, obviously, for Chronicles of Narnia, Mere Christianity, and these very easily accessible books. He seems so unique in his, maybe the spectrum of which he writes. I mean, do you know of somebody that's that broad, I suppose? I mean, I know there's tons of generalists, but he seems unique in that. I'm sure you experienced that going through one of his denser books, but the way he's able to put it in Narnia. Do you believe he'll be read for hundreds of years? Yes, absolutely. I mean, he's an absolutely towering figure. He's he's one of the true greats of the 20th century, an absolutely masterful thinker and writer. I mean, he he, he encompassed what would be, you know, three or four different careers for, for most <laughs> mere right. mortals. Right. You know, just his academic career alone <laughs> in English literature, English literary criticism and history. I mean, that itself is spectacular. And that's probably the least well-known aspect of his work. Right. But, you know, you, you don't get to be um, a, a fellow of Magdalen College, Oxford, and professor of medieval Renaissance English at Cambridge by accident. Sure. Um, it's because you are a su- supreme expert in that field. Um, but Lewis is much better known for two other fields, as, as you point out. First of all, fiction, especially the Chronicles of Narnia. And you know, he's, he's, he's written there works which have 
definitely entered the canon of the permanently fixed canon of English children's literature. That, that Narnia will still be being read in 500 years' time, I'm sure. Um, and alongside his fiction, you have his Christian apologetics, like mere Christianity and the problem of pain and so on. I think those are, you know, those are understandably going to have a less long shelf life just because of the nature of the beast, that, sure. you know works which address the imagination, the, the creative works like Narnia, uh, are more timeless. Um, already, mere Christianity is beginning to show its datedness in certain respects. I mean, it's still a classic work and very well worth reading, but um, I'm sure that if Lewis were still alive today and, and rewriting mere Christianity, he would put quite a lot of things differently, whereas I doubt that he would make many changes to Narnia. Right, right. Now, in, in terms of yourself, what what about Lewis keeps you coming back to do more work? <laughs> well, uh, partly uh, his sheer variety. Yeah. You know, if you're tired with the English literary criticism, you can turn to the apologetics. And if you're tired with the apologetics, you can turn to the fiction. If you're tired with the fiction, you can turn to his poetry. If you're tired with the poetry, you can you can look at Lewis's life. Is you know he had a very interesting autobiography. Um, so. And then, you know, beyond his life, you have that of, of his close colleagues and friends like Tolkien and so on. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I, think, I tend to think of Lewis and Tolkien in the same way that we now look at uh, Wordsworth and Coleridge, you know, the two giants of the Romantic movement from the 19th century. I think Lewis and Tolkien will be looked back upon as two giants of, <laughs> of a, a recrudescence of the Christian imagination from the 20th century. Right. Right, so just you just haven't been you just haven't got bored yet, is what you're saying. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> I don't suppose I ever will. Uh, you know, Doctor Johnson said, "He who is tired of London is tired of life." And I think <laughs> if ever I get tired of C.S. Lewis, uh, the same will be true of me. I'll be tired of life. It'll be time for me to move on then. And not to not to rush you along, but as you look, you know, as after humanity gets its next print run are there other horizons in lewis that you're you're trying to you know are there distinctions you're trying to figure out how they work together or is there other things that you're currently working on in in terms of lewis uh yes i mean i'm writing quite a lot of shorter things essays and articles and chapters in books uh, there's a, a new book coming out later this year called the undiscovered c.s lewis and i have a chapter in that in which i I pursue some of the, the 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 loose threads dangling from Planet Narnia and um, make a few more what I regard as very interesting little discoveries about the, the planetary basis to the Narnia Chronicles. As for um, a bigger project, uh, another full-length book on Lewis, well, there are things in the pipeline, uh, but I probably shouldn't mention them yet. That's fair. Fair enough. Awesome. Well, Dr. Ward, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, I believe that so the new print run is coming. I believe you can get the book everywhere. Is there a particular place you'd like for folks to get it? Yeah, it's much best, much the best if people go to the publisher's website. So you go to wordonfire.org slash humanity, because if you order it through the publisher, you are certain to get for free a tie-in edition of the abolition of man with a matching cover. Oh, Collins, the publisher of Lewis's works, have, have kindly agreed to this complimentary edition, which you get. So you get two books for the price of one if you go through the publisher. 
Whereas if you go through Amazon, I'm not sure you get that book. So it's definitely worth going through wordonfire.org slash humanity. That way you get your own copy, the matches of the abolition of man. Fantastic. Thank you, Dr. Ward, for coming on. My pleasure, Jake. Till next time. <laughs>